please consider supporting the Wednesday blog by going to patreon.com slash s-t-h-o-s-d-k-a-n-e. Thanks. Welcome back to the Wednesday blog with me, Sean Kane. It's Wednesday, 27 June, 2023. This week, A consideration of how memories survive as stories. A few weeks ago, when I visited Mount Carmel Bluffs and the the Mother House of the Sisters of Charity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, known more commonly as the BVMs in Dubuque, Iowa, I was struck at how, even though it had been eight years since my last visit and 14 years since my last time I was there for a family funeral, the memory of those relatives my great-aunt, Sister Therese Kane, in particular, still lived on in the sisters who came up to us throughout the day, telling stories of times now long past and people they knew who lived in those moments. It had been so long since I'd seen Sister Therese that it felt strange to call her sister as we all did in the Kane family when she lived. That visit to Dubuque was in honor of Sister and my grandfather's cousin, Sister Mary Jo Keene, who died in April, only a few weeks after having moved out into her community's retirement facility called Mount Carmel Bluffs. At her wake, I noted to the attending sisters, relatives, and friends that she was one of the very last in my family who knew her parents' generation who came to Chicago from County Mayo in the first half of the last century. Moreover, She was the very last person living who attended my great-grandfather Kane's funeral in 1941, the last one who could tell some of of the stories she heard as a child of life in Mayo at the end of centuries of colonial rule. At Sister's funeral lunch in 2009, I remember hearing Sister Mary Jo, my grandfather, and their cousin, Father Bill McNulty, telling these stories about their parents, some of which I had never heard before then of how hard it was for them to come to America, and of the trouble they faced in Ireland that led to their immigration. Some of these stories were still in the air at Sister Mary Jo's funeral lunch, told by my cousin Rosemary. Yet, as that first generation born in America leaves us, so too their stories begin to fade away. In the last week, I slowly began to acknowledge the news of the lost submersible Titan, which left St. John's in Newfoundland for the wreck of the RMS Titanic, and upon its descent beneath the surface was never seen again. At first, I acknowledged it was happening, yet didn't pay the story much heed. Yet as my parents began to give it more attention and talk more about it over dinner, I slowly started paying attention more. The Titan's mission to take tourists down to the remains of the Titanic two and a half miles, 3.8 kilometers beneath the surface of the North Atlantic, is as much an act of nostalgia as any pilgrimage or historical tour can be. 
For $250,000, passengers were brought to the ocean floor to see the great ship as it rests, slowly decaying away with the passage of time. I'll admit the idea of seeing it for myself is intriguing. Though even before the Titan was reported lost at sea, I doubt I'd ever take the oppor that opportunity to visit the Titanic. One disaster resulted from fascination in another disaster. The sinking of the Titanic is a curious event for me, because it is just over the horizon of what I consider recent events to my own life. Many of the last survivors, who themselves were old enough to remember the event, died around the time that I was born, 80 years after that, the ship sank into the cold North Atlantic. What's more, the generation of young immigrants in their 20s and 30s who left Ireland for America at the time of its sinking included my Cain great-grandparents, who arrived in this country in 1914 and 1920, respectively. The Titanic followed the same course that my great-grandfather's ship, the RMS Carmania, sailed between Cove, then called Queenstown, and New York two years later in April 1914. And there is a point in my mind where it's clear that had circumstances been different, had he sailed at age 20 instead of 22, he very well could have been on the Titanic. It's always been strange to me to talk with people for whom recent memory is far shorter. When I started teaching at Binghamton University, I expected my students, all New Yorkers, would have more vivid memories of 9-11 in the aftermath, or perhaps had families who were there and directly involved. Yet these students could tell me little about it, saying they were either too young or had not been born yet when the attacks took place 22 years ago. I think to my own early childhood, to my understanding of world events as they happened right before my birth in December 1992, and I at least have known a fair deal about events like the 1992 presidential election in November, or the fall of the Soviet Union in August 1991 for most of my life. I think an insatiable curiosity and old Saturday Night Live reruns for much of what I know about those events. Still, for most of my childhood, memories of people who lived in the 19th century persisted. And so for me, my great-grandfather Thomas Kane, who died 51 years before I was born, feels today closer than might be expected of someone who was born 100 years before me. On Monday night this week, I found myself diving deep down rabbit holes, reading about Titanic survivors. It's rather morbid to say that someone's sole distinction is that they're the last Titanic survivor of a certain demographic, and that's certainly something I'd have trouble being proud of. My reading led me to the story of an Englishwoman named Melvina Dean, who was a nine-week-old infant at the time of the sinking, who was on her way to Kansas City with her parents to start a new life here on the prairies. The Washington Post reported in 1997 on the completion of her long voyage when, quote, 85 years after setting out for Kansas City, she finally arrived here to meet cousins long separated by the waters of the Atlantic. The article in question mentioned where her uncle, who the Dean family was planning on staying with, lived on Harrison Street, leading me to old city directories to see where on Harrison. The most likely address is the corner of Harrison Street and Armour Boulevard, on the eastern side of Midtown, near where many of my maternal Donnelly relatives lived in the 1910s. Ms. Dean herself died in May 2009. I remember reading about her death when it happened. 
Then on the centenary of the sinking of the Titanic, I noticed the date come and go. There was a story that weekend on CBS this morning. Yet, for me, the main emotion was a strange feeling of an event which had always been there in the edge of memory of, of the people I knew fading ever further into the distance, less a lived event that my relatives read about in the papers when it happened, and more a historical event. In time, all our lives will reach that threshold. Our memories recorded will survive as relics of people, places, and moments long past, and those that were only spoken or thoughts yet never written down will fade away. There is so much I wish I knew about the immigrant generation of my family. I've seen pictures, heard stories, been told I look like my great-grandfather Kane in a striking way. Yet beyond those things, I've never really known them. We are fortunate in our time to have so many audio and video recordings of our world, to an extent that our memories will hopefully survive long after we are all gone. The democratization of these technologies is a gift. It means that when future generations want to yearn for the early 21st century, they will have the cornucopia of our recorded memories to relive. For older generations, we are left with visions of the past defined by movies, talking in silence, which the New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd wrote about this week. Her own father almost boarded the Titanic on his Atlantic crossing from Ireland. Like the French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss, seeking the most remote of peoples in Brazil, to get an idea of what first contact was like in 1500, we are left with less recognition of the spirit behind these historical events, the further they move away from us, until, in a tragic ending to our story, they are ancient history to us. Thank you for listening to this democratized record of my own voice, my own thoughts, from this particular moment in time. Enjoy the rest of your week. The Wednesday blog is written, read, and produced by me, Sean Kane, and I also came up with the theme music. You can learn more about my work by going to linktree slash Kane. That's L-A-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash S-T-H-O-S-D-K-A-N-E. There you'll learn more about my website and my blog. Thanks. Thanks as always to my regular listeners, including monthly supporters Elizabeth Duke, John Lundy, and Alex Brisson. You can learn more about how to support my podcast by going to patreon.com slash S-T-H-O-S-D-K-A-N. I appreciate all the help they provide. Thanks for listening this week. This podcast is distributed by Spotify. Learn more at podcasters.spotify.com.